0: Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. Uh, this week on Russian Roulette, I am joined by Ambassador James Dobbins, Howard Schatz, and Ali Wine uh, from the RAND Corporation. They are the authors of a new report called, Russia is a Rogue, Not a Peer, China is a Peer, Not a Rogue, Different Challenges, Different Responses. Uh, we're going to talk about how the Chinese and Russian challenges to US interests differ, uh, how they're the same, and what we can do about it. Uh, it's an interesting and, and provocative report, and I think the conversation was equally interesting and provocative. And I hope Hope you'll enjoy it. Let's get started. Welcome back to Russian Roulette. I'm joined in the studio today by James Dobbins, Howard Schatz, and Ali Wine, who are the authors of a new report called Russia is a Rogue, Not a Peer, China is a Peer, Not a Rogue, uh, published by the Rand Corporation. Um, gentlemen, thank you for joining us
1: pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having us.
0: So I like this report because it addresses the Sino-Russian challenge to the United States, which, if you read the National Security Strategy, should be our top priority. But it does it in a way that tries to disaggregate the nature of that challenge and and points out the ways in which Russia and China are different. Um, So if Russia is a rogue, what does that mean exactly?
2: Well, I think there's a a couple of sentences in the report that, that highlight this. Uh, the report says that both countries seek to alter the status quo, but only Russia has attacked neighboring states, annexed conquered territory, supported insurgent forces seeking to attach, detach yet more conquered territory. Russia assassinates its opponents at home and abroad. Russia interferes in foreign elections, subverts foreign democracies, and works to undermine European and Atlantic institutions. In contrast, China's growing influence is based largely on more positive measures, trade, investment, and development assistance.
0: So I don't want to focus too much on China because after all, this is Russian roulette. But um, I think it, you know there's plenty of evidence of Chinese, what some people in this town like to call malign influence, um, both on the coercive and the – less coercive side of things. So is this really a difference of tactics or is it a difference of fundamental objectives between the two?
2: I think it's a difference of intensity and it's a difference of objectives. Um, uh, Russia is a weak power that has no hope of displacing the United States as a leader of the international community and therefore seeks to weaken the order that the United States represents and heads. China has a reasonable aspiration of replacing the United States. It, therefore, seeks to shape that order with a view to ultimately replacing the United States as its leading power. That's a, uh, One is a, a, a largely destructive agenda. The other is a constructive one, although one that represents a serious challenge to the United States.
0: So. Bringing the conversation back to Russia, what is your sense of what Russia's long-term objective is? I mean is it really just sowing anarchy and chaos in the international system? Uh,
2: I, I think it is to weaken the system, to uh, give itself more freedom of action, to, uh, to increase its influence. Um, it's largely a nostalgic uh, set of objectives. Based on Russian imperial and uh, and Soviet history, uh, a return to uh, an earlier era, um, uh, and I don't, I'm not sure it has a, a constructive or even a, a, a clear uh, agenda other than uh, than as I've suggested.
1: Just to add, uh, just to add a, a point to what Jim just said. Now, it's it's interesting. I think that Russia, in the you know, maybe you know, ten years ago, might have harbored some more grand strategic objective. I, there is a speech that uh, Vladimir Putin gave, I think, in October of 2011, in which, and this is obviously before the annexation of Crimea and the attendant sanctions that have really uh, crippled Russia's economy, but. Uh, Vladimir Putin said in October 2011 that he envisioned, and this was also at a time when the the price of oil was much higher than it is now. He said that he envisioned Russia as being a thriving economic intermediary between Western Europe and the Asia Pacific. But it's interesting, though, that he doesn't really, at least as far as I can gather, he doesn't talk in those grandiose terms now. I think that if, if given a sort of extant structural decline, if you look at their demographic outlook, uh, they're uh, declining. Uh, coercive energy leverage and if you also look at their diplomatic isolation in western europe their increasingly supplicant relationship vis-a-vis china my sense is that russia feels that it stands to gain more influence in world affairs via destabilization than as jim was saying they're trying to offer a constructive alternative
0: I, i'm going to push back on this a little bit because i think that my own view on this is that russia clearly dislikes the present international system and I don't think there's much disagreement about the fact that it is a revisionist power vis-a-vis that system at the same time I think it's easy to overstate Russia's isolation um, you know if you look at the relationships it succeeded in cultivating not only in places like Syria and, and Venezuela but even in Europe and and in parts of the United States as well um, I think there is a concerted attempt here to try and change the basic functioning of the system, probably in a more extensive way than China, um, but not simply to blow things up. I mean, if anything, Russia portrays itself and, you know, Jim, you talked about the imperial and, and Soviet legacies, right? Well, there is this notion that, that Nicholas I talked about in the 19th century of uh, you know, Russia as the uh, the gendarme of Europe, uh, and there seems to be something to that in terms of, of Russia's approach today. You know, supporting authoritarian regimes that it can use as uh, proxies or allies, um, looking for polit- politicians or movements that will. Uh, that will at least be deferential to to Russian interests in exchange for for its support of them. Um, trying to undermine existing uh, alliances and institutions, um, and I think we haven't quite gotten to the next stage of that, which is well, then what replaces them? And this is where I think this you know idea of Russia as a as a rogue as a, as a state that's trying to blow things up has a little bit of purchase, because Ali, I think you're right. We haven't really had the clear statement of what well, Russia seeks to replace this with. Um, there was some discussion earlier about you know, the greater Eurasia partnership or various kinds of, of integration schemes in the larger Eurasian space. Uh, for a variety of reasons, those seem to have gone, if not entirely by the wayside, but have been kind of downgraded in terms of their overall importance, even if they haven't entirely gone away. Um, but I think that's still where a lot of the of the focus is. Um, now, whether this is the, the long-term state of affairs or whether there is going to be some, you know, shift towards a more visionary approach, whether under Putin or whatever comes next, of course, remains to be seen.
3: Look, a lot of what you say about Russia's relationships is right. But many of these are tactical. And I think you need to look at them in comparison with – Uh, the other poles of power, the United States and and, uh, China and the overall world system, right? The United States has true allies. Russia does not have true allies. The United States has NATO. The EU is still quite strong. Yes, Russia does have relationships with parties and with people throughout the EU. But I think if you were to talk to every EU country, at least the EU 27, they would still see their future in the EU. Now, it may be different for the euro, but certainly they see uh, strength in staying with the EU, perhaps reforming it, perhaps changing it, but not breaking it apart. Likewise, if you look at global institutions, right? Yes, the Russia has a veto in uh, the UN Security Council, but Look at other global institutions, the architecture, the international system, the WTO, the IMF and the World Bank, right? It's not Russia that's a big player there uh, and Russia doesn't set the agenda there. Likewise, if you look at China, you know, China does not have allies the way the United States does, but, but China can assemble a Belt and Road Forum with dozens and dozens of countries coming and China can assemble... Uh, uh, an Africa conference every three years and get heads of state. It can assemble uh, the SCO. True, Russia is a part of that, but you know we'd really look at that as China. Put together other global institutions, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, New Development Bank. So, so compared to what could be its competitors or its friends, Russia really doesn't have the kinds of relationships that uh, one would need to have a major uh, positive influence on the global system.
0: Yeah. Well, I think part of the issue here is that one thing that Russia does not have, that the United States and China both do, is a broad diversified and growing economy. Um, and that obviously limits its ability to shape some of these particularly economic institutions at the global level. Um, and for that reason, you know, we talk about Russia, China, the United States as sort of the three great powers, but it's really kind of, you know, two and a half. Um, I think where Russia is putting its emphasis is not so much on the economic Uh, levers of power so much as on kinetic measures, which obviously have a a certain utility, um, at least within, you know, certain geographic bounds. Um, And there I would argue it's been pretty effective. Now, you know, if Russia ends up sort of owning Syria because it's managing the political transition there, is that really a win or not? is an open question. Um, But I think there's a a kind of different approach here based on the recognition that Russia doesn't have the kind of economic uh, levers or resources that either uh, Washington or Beijing have.
2: I think – I mean I think this paper is a reaction to the national security strategy. If you read the national security strategy, it's – Its definition of the Russian and Chinese challenge is identical. They make no distinction between the two at all. And we're arguing that there are big distinctions between the two. Um, Russia likes certain aspects of the international system, but it doesn't like and isn't a main player in most of the important uh, elements of the international system and therefore sees a virtue in weakening them um, uh, China, rather, is, is a, an important member in a larger spectrum of international institutions, is not trying to undermine or destroy those institutions, but to shape them in China's interest.
0: Or to uh, replace them.
2: No, I don't, think, I don't think China wants to replace the World Bank or the IMF. Um, it it certainly wants to compete with the Asian Development Bank, largely because the members of the Asian Development Bank weren't prepared to give China voting rights commensurate with its strength and potential contributions. That's hardly a malign uh, influence. It's a source of competition. There's a difference between straight-up competition in which China behaves like the United States and we don't like it, uh, and a, a competition in which Another country seeks to undermine our basic institutions, which Um, I think,
0: if you ask the Russians, they would say is also doing what the United States does. But that's maybe another conversation. (laughs) Um, One of the other sort of interesting implications of, of the national security strategy since we, we brought it up is that the nature of the Sino-Russian relationship is going to be a really important driver of future uh, US strategy and engagement with both countries. Where do you guys come down on the, the nature of, of that bilateral relationship and how it's changing?
3: It's a fairly unequal relationship. Uh, in part, I think Russia is looking to China because it has not been fully accepted by the United States and the West. And uh, China can prove to be a good customer over the long term for Russian resources. Uh, so there's uh, partly convenience, partly geostrategic, geopolitical reasons for the two to get together. It's a highly imbalanced relationship, though. Um, again, because China's demo, uh, Russia's demographic prospects are not good its economic prospects for now are not good, uh, whereas China also faces some headwinds, but it's in much better shape, a much larger economy. And so you see uh, the energy deals. Russia is, is – uh, uh, China is bargaining hard with Russia. Uh, there are no favors being given. Uh, the two are cooperating on other, on other issues. China is respecting Russia's equities in terms of security in Central Asia. Uh, and Russia seems to be respecting China's desires regarding economics in Central Asia. There's certainly more scope for cooperation, uh, trade routes through Russia, Chinese uh, activity uh, in, in investment or, or uh, other business activity in Russia could be helpful, um, but, but highly unequal, and there's no reason to think that it will change and become more equal
1: over the medium term. And just to add to to add to Howard's point, I think that one of the paradoxes of the the Sino Russian relationship is that if you look at current trend lines, it is simultaneously becoming more robust across a range of dimensions and more asymmetric. So if you look at it's it's true if you, if you do look at if you look at uh, weapons uh, weapons sales uh, or weapons transfers between the two countries, if you look at the the rapport between President Xi and President Putin. Uh, the number of visits that uh, President Xi has made to Russia. Uh, if you look at their their trade, which just recently crossed hundred billion dollars for two way trading relationship, which crossed hundred billion dollars for the first time. So if you take if you look at those if you look at those trends, you see an increasingly robust relationship. But as Howard was saying, the economic imbalance between the two continues to grow apace. And so in uh, in the early years after the Cold War, uh, China China's overall economic size and that of Russia were roughly comparable. Now, China's economy, it's in aggregate terms, is roughly eight times as large as Russia's, uh, and uh, China's growth rate is roughly four times uh, as, as fast as Russia's. And so, my sense is that if the economic imbalance between the two continues to grow apace, and, and the trend suggests that it will, uh, even if China China experiences a deceleration of its growth, that you will have an increasingly asymmetric relationship in which China will become more and more the senior partner, Russia, more and more the uh, the supplicant partner. so it's it's possible, and I think that the China- Russia relationship demonstrates this this reality that you can have a relationship that is increasingly robust but also increasingly asymmetric. What worries me is, and this goes to to Jim's point about the the kind of the conflation of the Chinese and Russian challenges that you see in in both the national security strategy and the national defense strategy is that while the present relationship is more, a partnership of convenience than an alliance of consequence. Uh, a policy of dual containment or something approaching dual containment would be likely to hasten uh, a transition or a maturation of the relationship from the former kind of partnership of convenience into the latter, namely an alliance of consequence. So we, it's not clear to me that the United States uh, alone can uh, can can blunt the momentum in Sino-Russian relations or or hive China off of Russia or the other way around, uh, but it can at least take steps to. To prevent the prevent an acceleration in their convergence, uh, and that would be to avoid a uh, avoid a posture of dual containment.
0: Yeah, I want to come back to the the policy recommendations in in a bit here. I think you're absolutely right about the way that the relationship has become both closer and more asymmetric in the last decade or so. I would argue that in part, that is the result of the way in which relations between Russia and the West have gone completely off the rails. Um, Russia, for a long time in the 1990s and the early 2000s, was very worried about this potential for an asymmetric relationship with China and was engaged in a policy of trying to balance economically and in security terms between... China on the one hand, the West on the other. I think we've really seen an acceleration of the embrace of China since 2014, since the imposition of sanctions, um, which almost seems to be a strategic decision on the Russian part, that we're in a long-term confrontation with the United States, the European Union, um, and our only way of getting through this is to accept this kind of unequal relationship with China. So there is a sense in which Western policy and the, and the development of the relationship with the West is kind of the third pillar of this relationship.
3: That's, that's right. But in some ways, Russia has put itself in its own box. Uh, you know, the Western relationship with Russia, certainly post-Ukraine, uh, has reasons, right? Yeah. Russia mm-hmm. took the territory of, of what is considered a European country. And that's just beyond the pale for, for Europe and for the United States and, and for, uh, under principles of the global system. Uh, you know, Russia would certainly benefit by a stronger relationship with the West. A lot of uh, what, it, what can be done to do that are, is really up to Russia. So, you know, Russia – Russians will also look back to 1990s, the 1990s, which which were bad for Russia. And, you know, it is true that uh, the West made mistakes. Russian policymakers made mistakes in part, uh, you know – we don't have very good knowledge of how to uh, r- restore or rescue collapsing empires. It just doesn't happen <laughs> that often, right? So everyone was dealing in a period of great uncertainty, and uh, oil price trends certainly didn't help either. So I think of
0: another collapsing empire that needs rescuing right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's another story. I would <laughs> say
3: one other thing about the <clears throat> Russia-China relationship. You know, in some ways, Russia has to have the same concerns that the U.S. and the West does regarding its technology, right? Yeah. China is certainly upgrade, interested in upgrading its military technology. I don't think it really cares where those upgrades come from. And to the extent that Russian military equipment and technology is more advanced than China, Russia should uh, rightfully have some concerns there. So there there are – that's just one. But there are certainly many areas of interest where Russia and the West could find accord. Uh, but unfortunately right now, largely because of Russian actions, uh, those avenues are – um uh, much more narrow than they could be. Yeah, I
2: mean personally I I feel that Russia was uh the the west mishandled policy toward Russia in the 90s and early uh, years of this decade of this uh, century uh and uh, uh and pushed Russia into a position uh in which it crossed certain lines for which it's very difficult to Back away from. Um, I, I think there is a prospect, probably under new certainly under new leadership in Washington and probably under new leadership in Moscow to uh, amend the relationship uh, and to uh, re-attract Russia uh, to a more positive relationship with Europe and the United States. Um, I, I think it's difficult uh, with Putin, who's identified with the hard line, with the seizure of Crimea and uh, the uh, continued insurgency in eastern Ukraine. Uh, And it's impossible with uh, President Trump, who faces a a Congress that doesn't trust him on Russian policy and effectively paralyzes the US in this respect. And that's going to continue for the duration of this administration, I'm afraid. Um, uh, But uh, I think there is a prospect in the longer term, um, for some uh, new equilibrium in that relationship. Um, uh, it's it's even conceivable that you would have sort of the reverse Nixon goes to China. Uh, China was the weak partner at that time and was detached from the, the senior partner, the Soviet Union. And one could conceive of a situation in which Russia was detached from China, but not at the price of... Uh, accepting uh, aggression and, uh, and seizure of, uh, of uh, foreign territory. And so I think there are big hurdles to get over before one could achieve that.
0: Yeah. I think there were some people in Trump's orbit, at least early in the administration, who had that very idea. And that, apart from you know whatever kinds of collusion or whatever you want to call it explains some of the fascination with with Russia that exists in in certain circles in the in the Trump administration um, one of the differences though, apart from Trump himself, is that in 1969, the Soviet Union and China nearly went to war over a disputed border uh, and that was the context within which Nixon hmm. went to China. Um, for all the tensions in the Sino-Russian relationship now, I don't think there's kind of an equivalent sense of, of crisis um, that encourages – that would encourage either power to, to be open to that kind of, of diplomatic revolution revolution. Now, of course, under new leadership in, in Moscow, that could change, uh, and in Washington, for that matter. Um, but I think, you know, sometimes we get into this, um, we look back fondly on the, the sort of Nixon to China model. And I think in the long term, there is some opportunity there precisely because of the, the unbalanced nature of the Sino-Russian relationship that we talked about. But it's going to be, I think, more complicated in some ways than, than Nixon going to China.
1: And, and just to to elaborate on that point, and also to to elaborate on on Jim's point about the long term potential of this hiving off or some kind of U.S. Russia condominium to counterbalance China, it's I think that there there could be a possibility in the long term, uh, but I, I think that th- I think that Russia would have to render. Uh, at least one of two judgments, and I would argue that they would have to render both judgments in order to decide with the United States since this variant of triangular diplomacy. The first judgment that Russia would have to render is that the long-term strategic risks of an increasingly asymmetric relationship with China outweigh the yeah. the potential upside. So that would be conclusion one or judgment one. That's either. right. And I think the second judgment is mm-hmm. that uh, you know in the 1990s and I think in the early 2000s, you know, the United States still, you know, the United States still, you know, had this perhaps triumphalist conclusion that, you know, Russia, whatever it, its its woes in the 1990s and whatever sense of aggrievement it felt against the order, that Russia still viewed itself as a principally European country, that it, it sought to reintegrate itself into the West. Uh, I think that Russia would have to conclude that its long-term, uh, the more reliable long-term path towards restoring some of its influence uh, would lie in re- attempting or undertaking to reintegrate itself into the West, as opposed to deepening its relationship with China. And and again, given the growing inequities, particularly economic, in the relationship between China and Russia, uh, it's possible in the long term that that Russia might render one or both of those judgments. But I, I agree with with Jim that in the short term, and particularly given the leadership right now in in Washington and Moscow, that those judgments seem unlikely. Yeah, I I agree with
0: that. And I would just add one other thing, which is that if Russia itself transforms to the point where it can be more of an equal player in this triangular relationship and have more confidence in its ability to maneuver between Washington and Beijing, then it might be more capable of of making that kind of a judgment. Um, But as long as it's kind of a question of are you reliant on the one or are you reliant on the other where moscow is more the object than the subject um then it's it's harder um let's get back to the to the question of uh as every russianist uh, likes to put it uh what is to be done um so given the nature of the of the three way relationship that we've that we've talked about and Given the the parallel but not congruent challenges that China and Russia pose to, to U.S. interests, how does Washington effectively manage that scenario, that situation?
2: Well, in the report, what we recommend is a return to an updated version of the Cold War, uh, instruments of defense, deterrence, um, uh, reassurance of allies, and arms control, um, uh, and updating, which requires... Factoring in the ubiquity and uh, power of the internet, um, and uh, and uh, and uh, and the necessity of of defense, deterrence, and reassurance in that sphere, as well as the more conventional um, uh, strategic and conventional arms spheres.
0: Yeah, that one's going to be tough. Um, I think we're still trying to get our heads around exactly how that would operate and. The other piece of it, having participated in a lot of these dialogues with with Russians, is that we view Russian interference in our elections as a violation of of sovereignty and as something that can't be allowed to stand and that is a, a fundamental impediment to sort of normalization. Russia looks at a lot of the things that we've done within the Russian political system, again, going back to the 1990s, support for independent media, democracy promotion, NGOs, um, declarative and other kinds of support for protesters as being of the same ilk. Um, and so you know, we think about Russian interference in one way. Russians think about American interference in a fundamentally different way. And I don't know how you have – A conversation about ways forward on this question of interference in a way that allows you to get to some kind of of rules of the road. I
2: I could question use of the term Russians in arguing that all Russians feel that way. U.S. behavior in the 90s, support for uh, civil society, independent media, uh, democracy, uh, were all supported by the Russian government Uh, and, uh, you know, American... Uh, you know, Radio Free Europe was allowed to broadcast from Russia. Um, so it's not as if this was done over Russian objections. It wasn't a clandestine mm-hmm. or covert or even a confidential effort at uh, manipulating a society. It was an effort uh, condoned by the Russian government and by many Russian people to try to move this society in a given direction. Now, um, uh, now, of course, you have a different leadership and a different set of, uh, uh, of uh, desires and, and how you characterize that leadership's view is correct. And, and it may represent, at this point, a view of most Russian people, although it's hard to know. Um, I think that, uh, first of all, uh, we're doing almost nothing in terms of an ideological campaign in Russia at the moment partly because we're not allowed to. We've been to, kicked out. Uh, and partly because we're not investing. I don't think the CIA has a large program of supporting Russian dissident institutions. Um, or or uh, I don't think that we're using the internet uh, aggressively to uh, try to undermine support for the Russian state. I don't think we're um, uh, penetrating Russian uh, cyber uh, defenses and spilling out secrets about where Putin's money is and where his uh, his cronies' resources are. I think we could do all those things, and I think if we did them for a while, it might become the basis for a truce, um, in which uh, there's some modus vivendi, in which we agree on what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable. Um, but as long as we're passive in this regard and regard and rely purely on our defenses. Uh, our domestic defenses against Russian interference. Um, I think we're going to be at a disadvantage.
0: Yeah, it's the old debate about uh, deterrence by denial or deterrence by punishment. Right, and I think there's probably aspects of both. Right, um, but we're. I think we're still a long way from from being able to conceptualize what that what a truce would look like.
2: Yeah, I agree. But we're not even trying.
0: Yeah. Um, on the the arms control peace. I know this is another area where we've traditionally done it in the bilateral context, but now with the emergence of China, it's more of a multilateral or at least trilateral um, question. Um, do you have thoughts about how to uh, sort of approach arms control in, the, in a world in which it's not just the US and Russia?
2: It probably depends on the sphere you're talking about. If you were talking about space, for instance, I, I would think it would be necessary to involve China in an ASAT treaty, for instance. Um, in terms of nuclear arms, China maintains a minimal deterrent. Um, last thing we want to do is encourage China to compete with the United States and the Soviet Union and, and Russia in the nuclear sphere. So, in terms of actual, you know, uh, uh, equal and equal and lower limits, it's really only still a U.S.-Russian game. Um, conventional arms, uh, again, I think it, this is a largely a European concern. Um, uh, I, 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 I think a, a, a conventional arms agreement that tr- tried to encompass China would become virtually global in scope. At least it would include all of Asian countries and be pretty unmanageable.
0: Do you guys have thoughts on the sort of where do we go from here aspect?
1: I mean, I would just add on not so much on just russia narrowly, but just at the, at the broader triangle. it's it's not a particularly you know satisfying conclusion or a particularly you know, revelatory conclusion. but I, I do think we need to think about pursuing tailored and differentiated approaches to uh, to China and Russia. I mean, when I look at china, i i I see a country that is, a resurgent a resurgent increasingly global power it's it's more selectively revisionist whereas I, when you look at Russia it is in many ways structurally declining and it's more of a short-term proximate challenge and it's it's more opportunistically obstructive and the way in which you deal with a selectively revisionist power and an opportunistically obstructive one i, I think those ways ha- those strategies have to be different so that would be the first one. The second is that I we like that should, term opportunistically obstructive. Because if you look at their, I, I think if you look at their different vectors of effort, um, I think it, I, I think that Russia. I think it's fair to say that Russia is is particularly under Vladimir Putin. I think that Russia is certainly a um, has demonstrated tactical agility. But it's it's not clear. We, we sometimes see these depictions in Western and, and particularly in American media that that Putin is, is playing multidimensional chess and that he is a strategic grandmaster. But when I think of Can the Can somebody perp- please tell me what multidimensional <laughs> chess actually is? I hate it, that memo. I don't, I, I don't <laughs> know what it is either. But it, I think if you look at Russia's various vectors of effort and that, that Jim discussed earlier so propping up Assad in Syria, uh, conducting disinformation operations, hiving off uh, territory in its near abroad, those various efforts certainly have, have shored up Russian influence in a in a sense of, de- in a destabilizing sense. But whether or not those efforts actually have made Russia a more, uh, have, have increased Russia's overall base of power is a separate question. So again, when I look at kind of the 30,000 foot view, I see Russia that despite some of the the, the transactional partnerships it's forming, it's still... Is more diplomatically isolated today than it was in Western Europe, than it was say ten years ago. Uh, it doesn't have the same type of course of energy leverage it used to have. It's more of a supplicant to China, um, and it also, I mean, China has as a resurgent economic power. China has the the economic wherewithal to in, to envision credibly a uh, a unified Eurasian economic zone at which you know, China sits at the center, Russia doesn't have the economic wherewithal to harbor a a comparable set of aspirations. And so it's a long-winded way of saying that, again, the Chinese and Russian challenges are very different. And even though I suspect that their relationship will continue to progress, and even though in the short term, it doesn't seem that we'll be able to pursue a kind of variant of triangular diplomacy, we at least should avoid taking steps that accelerate uh, accelerate their extant convergence.
0: Yeah, I think that's the bottom line for, for an effective strategy. I mean, what does that entail?
3: It's not clear what specific steps should be taken because it's not clear what Russia will want to do, right? Part of the issue for Russia is it is clearly in Russia's economic interest to have closer relationships with Europe, with the United States. Um, you know, in terms of market size, the US and Europe are still the largest markets in the world. Uh, China is a great source of imports for many countries. It is not the best target destination for final exports. Uh, so even if if Russia has any hope of diversifying its economy, it will need those Western links. Uh, investment, people often speak about China's large investment plans on Belt and Road. That's really lending for the most mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. Uh, China invests in the West. It invests in Europe and and has tried to invest in the United States, although that's fallen somewhat. So, so Russia can't necessarily look to China for large-scale investment, at least the investment it would need. The issue then is, you know, Russia would like the sanctions off. Russia can benefit by access to Western markets. Russia can benefit by access to Western technology, even in its hydrocarbon sector. So exploitation of deep water mm-hmm. will benefit from the West – Uh, So it comes back to to what Russia is willing to do, right? Clearly Europe and the United States and other countries who have put sanctions on Russia will want to or should slowly remove those sanctions as Russia meets the terms of the sanctions, right? And it should be very clear that that will happen so that Russia doesn't – come to believe that it has no outs and that it's completely boxed in.
0: Yeah. And I think that's one of the dangers of where we are right now, particularly with the momentum for sanctions lying mostly in Congress Um, because – if you look at the way that sanctions are being the sanctions bills are being drafted, there's more stick than carrot. Um, and it's unclear sort of what the the out is. Uh, you know, certainly the sanctions that were passed over the annexation of Crimea, that's pretty clear. You know, you get out of Crimea these sanctions go away. Uh, you implement the Minsk agreement, these sanctions go away. Um, but what we've seen more recently, it's unclear what that out is. And I worry, precisely for the reasons that you outlined, that, what's, that what they're doing is making it harder to envision some kind of, of shift in the way that Russia views and, and approaches the United States and just deepening the belief that even if it's an unequal relationship china is is where the future lies
3: right. that's a strong argument for u s sanctions being held within executive order rather than legislation. Uh, now, most of the legislation usually has an out right but this goes back to a point Jim made earlier right if the administration exercises that out, what will then happen with relations between the administration and congress? So mm-hmm. it is a very difficult situation, especially if if some of the newer uh, proposed laws do, in fact, become uh, become law.
0: Yeah, I mean that's kind of the irony of of having an administration that came into power in this country with the idea that it was going to improve relations with Russia, actually presiding over a deepening of the confrontation.
1: And one of, the, and just on this point, I mean, one of the challenges with both, and I know that you you wanted to. to to move more towards what you know, what should the United States do and what should it, towards policy prescriptions. But I'm going to evade that one more time and just add another <laughs> an, another problem, but one that came to mind as we were talking. Um, I do think that the challenge, one of the challenges that the United States uh, faces vis-a-vis China as well as Russia is that there's a short-term goal of arresting the downward, uh, downward momentum in both our relationship with Russia and with China. But there's less of a clear sense, at least as far as I can gather, less of a clear sense of what it is that the United States hopes for its long-term equilibrium to be in. So first of all, you know, with China, how do we define China? Yes, it is increasingly competitive in a range of domains, but the United States and China do also have a number of interdependencies. So mm-hmm. they have a two-way trading relationship that runs in the hundreds of billions of dollars. China accounts for roughly one-third of international stud- all international students at American institutions of higher learning. So China is not an unalloyed, antagonist in the way that the Soviet Union was even though it's increasingly competitive so how do we classify china what long term equilibrium do we seek and with russia while it, there are fewer evident uh, fewer evident uh, arenas of cooperation at least under the present leadership in washington and and uh, moscow i think the most american and russian observers would say that some kind of equilibrium between the two countries is is beneficial but the contours uh, the contours remain unclear Um, And so right now, beyond saying that we want to arrest the downward spiral and momentum between uh, in U.S.-Russia relations and in U.S.-China relations, thinking beyond that short-term and and saying what would a constructive, durable equilibrium look like with both countries, I I suspect it remains uh, quite elusive right now.
0: Yeah. To bring it back to the national security strategy, I mean, this was – I've said this on several occasions, this is my biggest criticism of the national security strategy is that it says the United States needs to compete with Russia and China. These are the biggest challenges to the long-term security interests of the United States. But it doesn't provide a vision of where we want to go in that relationship. It just says we have to compete. Um, but compete towards what end? What is the final end game? And what does that three-way relationship ultimately look like? And what is the United States prepared to negotiate about? Um, I think that's the other piece that we still are trying to, to work our heads around. You know, what sorts of things that are in the ambitions of Beijing or Moscow do we consider acceptable or at least negotiable and which do we not um, I think the, that's going to be probably a, a challenge for the next administration yeah I mean
2: one you, you your basic question was how do we avoid driving the two together and uh, the first the first stage in that process is not is not to conceive uh, describe the relationships uh, uh, in ways that conflate the two, as we've suggested. Um, uh, With uh, China, the competition is largely economic. Certainly as regards uh, uh, our European uh, allies, it's entirely economic. Um, uh, There are security, uh, there are sort of traditional security and geopolitical uh, uh, aspects to the Asian Mm -hmm. relationships with China. But, uh, but the, the global challenge, China in Africa, in uh, Latin America, uh, and in Europe, and the Belt and Road is a, is a geo-economic. Uh, and the response is, is appropriately an economic response. Yeah. Uh, and in an economic response, it's never a, a win-lose uh, proposition. It's how to craft it so that both sides uh, gain uh, advantage. And uh, and that's not impossible. Yeah. Uh, with uh, with Russia, um, it's largely a geopolitical uh, challenge in the traditional sense, uh, but with a much weaker uh, adversary. Uh, and uh, uh, and uh, the, uh, the the positive uh, uh, carrots ought to be uh, on the table as well as the the more traditional negative responses. But uh, cat- categorizing the two, uh, arguing they're both malign, arguing they're both trying to undermine our democracy. China's not trying mm-hmm. to undermine our democracy. Russia uses its influence, its malign influence, uh, in order to weaken democratic structures. China just wants to uh, uses its influence to influence foreign policy. You know there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a lot of attention to Chinese influence in Australia yeah. where they've done, but they're, they're not trying to undermine Australian democracy
0: They're trying to make it work for them
2: No, well they're trying to influence Australian foreign policy um, uh, which is a more legitimate objective even if some of the instruments are, are not so uh, benign uh, so I think it, making these distinctions is an important starting point To uh, disaggregating this threat.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's really important, and I think you guys have uh, have have done a service by producing a report that allows us to at least separate the two and think about them in in different ways. So um, I hope you've uh, gotten a good response. I hope uh, get some constructive feedback, and hopefully we'll have some influence in terms of thinking about how we deal with this challenge. So, Jens, thanks for joining us.
2: Pleasure. Thanks Thanks so much.
0: All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Russian Roulette. Uh, There are links to uh, Ambassador Dobbins, Howard's, and Ali's bios uh, in the show notes. Uh, You can also access some of their recent publications there. Um, For all of you who haven't done so already, you really should uh, consider subscribing to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out and subscribe on Google Play or SoundCloud. Uh, Sign up, listen, keep spreading the word. Uh, and, of course, this is your biweekly reminder to send us mailbag questions. Uh, you can email them to rep at csis.org and put the words Russian roulette in the subject line. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you, and we're going to do another mailbag segment here shortly. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, uh, and you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. And of course, uh, as always, big thank you to everybody who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. Uh, That includes our producer, research associate, and program manager, Cyrus Newland, and the whole CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thanks for listening. See you again, or talk to you again in two weeks.